calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash pandemic. Chapter 9 Day 3 Night Flight Margaret's belly wanted to be sick, but Margaret was in charge of such things, and she was not going to let this helicopter ride make her throw up. She'd spent most of the last three years sequestered in her house. Now here she was, at 4 a.m., in a loud-as-hell helicopter streaking across the black surface of Lake Michigan, strapped tightly into an uncomfortable seat and wearing an ill-fitting helmet. Her soon-to-be ex-husband sat next to her, a constant reminder of her failures as a wife. How had Murray talked her into this? Maybe it hadn't been Murray at all. Maybe it was because the infection had returned, and she couldn't stand aside while others fought that evil for her. Before Project Tangram, before she and Amos stumbled onto something that would turn out to be one of humankind's biggest and worst discoveries, she had been an epidemiologist with the CDC. She hadn't been a nobody by any stretch, but no one had really known who she was. The infection changed all that. She moved from a back room to the front line. She had become the one, the person who figured it out, who stopped it. Doing so had cost so many lives, it had destroyed hers as well. She should have been a celebrity, a hero. She should have been an icon of the scientific world. Instead, she had suffered so much in the past five years, lost so much. She wasn't going to let that be for nothing. You will not win. I will beat you. The pilot's voice came over the headphones built into her helmet. We're coming up on the task force. We're on high alert, so this will be a slow approach as they make sure everything is okay. If you look out the port side, you can see the task force coming up pretty quick. Margaret readjusted her loose helmet as she looked. Rain pounded against the helicopter's windshield. She could see no stars, nothing but black above and below. Then in the distance, she saw the glow of lights. Warships on the Great Lakes. And the concept of lake didn't really register. She couldn't see land in any direction, not even the distant sparkle of cities or towns. As the helicopter closed in, the faint lights of the four gray ships became more clear. The ships were big. So big they seemed to ignore tall, black, undulating swells that could have dragged normal boats to the bottom. 
The longest of the gray ships looked boxy, like a cargo hauler. Two others were nearly as big, but had the sleek lines of combat vessels. One rode tall in the water, pristine and impressive, while the other listed slightly to port, parts of its superstructure blackened and twisted. It took her a moment to realize the two ships were identical, a before and after image representing the effects of combat. The smallest of the four didn't look like any ship she had ever seen. Margaret pulled on Clarence's sleeve and pointed at the identical pair's undamaged ship. She tried to lean into him and cracked her helmet against his. He reached up, tapped the helmet's microphone sitting directly in front of her mouth. Oh, she said. Sorry. She didn't need to yell over the helicopter's engine to be heard. She pointed out again. What is that? That's the Pinckney, Clarence said. Arleigh Burke-class guided missile destroyer. It's the flagship of the flotilla. The one that's listing is the Truxton. The one that looks like a tanker is the Carl Brashear. That's where we're headed. It's about 700 feet long, so your motion sickness should settle down once we're aboard. She hadn't told him she felt ill. He just knew. Margaret gestured to the final ship, the smallest of the four. Its long, thin, pointed nose widened near the base, flaring out into the superstructure, which itself led to a flat, square back deck. The ship's steeply sloped sides reminded her, somewhat, of the old Civil War ironclads, and yet the vessel's overall appearance was that of a spaceship from a science fiction movie. On the back deck, she saw two helicopters, ready and waiting. That's the Coronado. It's new. It's called a literal combat ship. So it literally does combat? Not literal. Littoral. It means close in to shore. That's where SEAL Team 2 is. Guided missile destroyers. Literal combat ships. SEALs. This was the equivalent of putting a floating flag in the middle of Lake Michigan and telling the rest of the world, this is ours, and if you even look this way, you're going to get a black eye. How typical. Five years after what could have been the extinction of the human race, and her government chose to rattle its saber instead of working with other countries to share the biggest scientific discovery in history. And yet as impressive as three of the four ships looked, she realized that just a day ago there had been a total of seven, two more on the surface, one below. Somehow the infection had taken them out. I will beat you. The helicopter suddenly plummeted, an elevator with the cable cut. Just as quickly, the drop ended with a hard rattle that bounced her in her seat and jostled her loose helmet. Sorry about that, said the pilot's voice in her earphones. The wind is pretty tricky. Turbulence is going to be rough as we come into land. Hold tight. Something seemed to slap the helicopter's left side. Margaret's stomach let out a brief but intense pre-puke warning. She started to look for something to throw up in, but Clarence was already offering her an open barf bag. Margaret held it to her mouth as she discovered that she was not, after all, in charge of such things. She kept throwing up as the helicopter descended toward the Carl Brashear. Chapter 10 Mutually Assured Destruction Steve Stanton stood at the rail of the Mary Ellen Moffat, wondering if the phrase, freezing your nuts off, was less a figure of speech and more an accurate scientific possibility. He stared out at an endless black surface, not that he could see all that far at 5 a.m. on a starless morning. November wind tore at his raincoat. Five-foot swells slapped against the hull, splashing icy spray into his face. 
He'd been out on the lake dozens of times while testing the platypus, but until this moment he had never in his entire life been in a place where he couldn't see land. He felt like a shivering speck in the middle of nowhere, like a satellite surrounded by the expanse of space. Bopin stood next to him. The old man had already thrown up over the rail once. He looked like he might soon do so again. It was hard to believe that just twelve hours earlier, Steve had been sunning himself in a lawn chair. As soon as the Mary Ellen Moffat left the dock, the temperature had plummeted twenty degrees. The growing wind dragged it down at least another fifteen. The Gore-Tex foul weather gear he'd bought, with some of Bopan's wad of cash, thank you very much, was rated for temperatures well below this, and yet still Steve felt wet and cold. When he got back, he'd write a stern letter of complaint to the manufacturer's customer service department. Steve found himself caught between excitement and fear. Despite years of preparation, it seemed impossible to believe that he was here, to possibly acquire a piece of something created by an extraterrestrial race. Bopin, Steve said in a whisper that was lost on the wind. He leaned in closer and spoke louder. Bopin, do you really think the location is accurate? Bopin shrugged. He looked miserable, but resigned to the misery, like a wet sheep patiently waiting out a hailstorm. Bopin hawked a loogie, spit it over the side. The man had cornered the market on phlegm. I do not know. I was told to bring you here and to launch your creation that way. He pointed starboard to the north. Steve stared out. Maybe his destiny was out there, nine hundred feet below the surface. He could be the one to find it, to bring it back for the glory of China. If what lay on the bottom provided new technology, if it was or helped create a weapon, his country needed it. Hard times were coming to the world. America would not give up her place at the top without a fight. The People's Party had spent decades preparing for that final shift to ascendancy. It wouldn't be fair if a chance find gave America some kind of accidental edge. Steve knew his history. When America had an advantage, it used that advantage. The atom bomb against Japan. Logistics and manufacturing against Germany. A superior air force against Iran, Libya, and Bosnia. The shock and awe tactics against Iraq. When America fought with one hand tied behind its back, as it had in Vietnam and Korea, it lost. When it used everything it had, when it let the generals decide strategy, America always won. China was gaining, gaining fast, but America still had the best tanks, the best planes, the best ships. Chinese armed forces claimed technical superiority, but as an engineer, Steve knew such claims were a steaming pile of bullshit. Even with the largest manufacturing base in the world and an entire government dedicated to developing a high-tech military, China was still a decade away from being able to fight on equal terms. If war came, America would use everything it had, including alien technology, maybe even that psycho-disease President Gutierrez had talked about. Sure, Gutierrez had warned everyone to be on the lookout for symptoms. Steve remembered the President's endless T-E-A-M-S public service commercials, the acronym that told the populace to watch for triangles, excessive anger, and massive swelling. People knew what to look for, yet the disease had never reappeared, at least as far as the public knew. Did America have it stored away somewhere, like the anthrax or smallpox it also wasn't supposed to have? If America possessed a weapon, America would use it.
The only way to keep the balance, to properly protect the land of his ancestors, was to make sure China had the same weapons. If Steve found something his nation could use to defend itself, he would become a legend. In America, he could get rich, sure, but he'd always be thought of as nothing more than that smart Asian guy. In China, they would build statues of him. He would be a national hero. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Island in Frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Bopan gagged, then leaned over the rail and threw up again. Steve grabbed a handful of the older man's coat just to make sure he didn't tip over and drop into the water. After a few heaves, Steve pulled Bopan back. The man wiped the back of his mouth with his sleeve. Sorry. Sorry. Steve wished he could have come alone. Or if they had to send someone with him, maybe someone better than this useless seasick messenger. Noise came from farther back on the deck. Cooper Mitchell and a short Mexican man named Jose were following Jeff Brockman around the deck. Bo Pan had been agitated that Cooper and Brockman brought another crew member. Steve couldn't figure out why. You had to have enough people to run the boat, after all. Jose was all of five foot five, wiry, with a heavy mop of black hair and a face so happy it looked like he had to concentrate to show anything but a smile. He seemed to look up to Brockman, both literally and figuratively. Brockman was always the first to laugh, first to scowl, first to talk, as if he felt compelled to drive every conversation and every action. He was fun to be around, but Steve suspected that Cooper was the only reason Brockman had a business at all. The three men checked the strap securing a pair of long, custom-made shipping crates. The bigger of the pair was five feet high and wide, 
fifteen feet long. Inside lay Steve's baby, the platypus. The second crate was smaller, only about four feet long and lower to the deck. It held another of Steve's creations, one he hoped he wouldn't have to use. Bopin watched the commotion as well. How soon can we put your machine in the water? Steve's brain automatically looked for a reason not to do that, checking for something he'd missed, something he'd forgotten. But there was nothing. He was prepared. Right now, I suppose. Steve watched Brockman and Cooper. He waited for something to happen. After a few minutes, he realized he was waiting for Bo Pan to tell Brockman to get started. But Bo Pan wasn't in charge. Steve was. It was all on him, and him alone. Now he really wished Bopan's handlers had sent someone else. As strange as it felt, Steve was now a real-life spy. The future of his country might actually rely on how well he handled the situation. No pressure, right? He cupped his hands and shouted, Hey! The men looked at him. Can we get it in the water? Brockman looked out at the horizon, as if gauging the wind and the waves. Then he glanced at Cooper. Cooper nodded. Brockman gave Steve a thumbs up. We're on it, boss! They started unstrapping the crate. Steve spoke and three men jumped into action? Maybe being in charge would be kind of fun. Chapter 11 Little Green Men Clarence Otto sat in a chair in front of the captain's desk waiting for Captain Jillian Yasaka to arrive. Margaret sat in a chair to his left. She stayed quiet, kept her thoughts to herself. Clarence couldn't blame her. The trip from the landing deck to this tidy office had been disturbing, to say the least. The wounded seemed to be countless. Every open space held prone sailors stretched out on tables, on cots, even lying on the floor with nothing more than a thin blanket to give them some padding. Some of the wounded slept. Others moaned tossed and turned, overwhelmed by hideous burns on hands, arms, and faces. Some of these men would be scarred for life. Margaret had tried to stop a half-dozen times, her years as a medical doctor compelling her to do something, to help those in pain. Clarence had had to keep her moving, gentle, steady pushes that reminded her she had to think of the bigger picture. There wasn't enough time to help any of them, let alone all of them. The Brashears' overcrowding made Clarence nervous. People packed that tight would speed the spread of any contagion. One infected person would quickly turn into ten, into a hundred. Maybe that was why Margaret was staying quiet, because she was worried about the same thing. Yeah, right. If the woman he'd married was still in there somewhere, Clarence didn't know how to find her. He tried. He tried to understand her, to help her, tried to deal with years of constant crying, constant sadness, the obsessive reading of blog posts and comments. He had tried to stay calm while being her endless punching bag, the target of a rage she couldn't control. He had tried to be there for her, guide her through all of it. At what point does a man say, I've had enough? Did he have to give up any chance at happiness in exchange for spending his short life watching her wither away? For better or worse looked great under the showroom lights, once you drove it off the lot, it was a different story. He couldn't fight for Margaret if Margaret wouldn't fight for herself. 
she sat in her chair, stared straight ahead. Did she still love him? No, probably not. Truth was, she hadn't loved anything for years. She still needed him, absolutely, but the way a crippled man needs a crutch, or the way a drunk needs a bottle. Still, as messed up as she was, Clarence knew that Margaret Montoya was the person for the job, the only person. His love for her had faded, but not his belief. She could figure this out. She could stop it. He would play his role. He'd make sure she ate, make sure she slept, because she forgot to do both when she lost herself in research. He'd fetch her coffee. He'd clean her clothes. Whatever it took. When the real shit hit the fan, Margaret Montoya took center stage, and Clarence was fine with that. Captain Yasaka entered. Clarence stood up instantly, faster than he would have liked, leftover reactions from his days in the service. At least he didn't salute. Margaret stayed seated. Captain Yasaka, actual rank of commander, but operating under the honorary title of captain like the commander of every ship in the Navy, was as neat and clean as her stateroom. Her graying black hair was pulled back in a tight bun, and her dark blue coveralls looked like they had been pressed and then hung on a mannequin protected behind a plate glass window. Her belt buckle was the only thing that outshined her shoes. She stood all of five-six, but Clarence could tell that she had the presence needed to make tall boys quake in their boots if they failed in their duties. All her meticulous grooming, however, didn't hide her exhaustion, a certain slackness to her face. Yasaka looked like she hadn't slept in days. She probably hadn't. Dr. Montoya, she said. She shook hands with Margaret, then Clarence. Agent Otto. Clarence nodded. Captain. Yasaka gestured to Clarence's chair. Sit. Relax. Clarence sat, as did the captain. My apologies for making you wait, she said. We're on full alert, and there were things that required my attention. Clarence waited for Margaret to speak. It was her show, after all. He was just the wingman. When she said nothing, he spoke for them both. Yes, ma'am. We understand. I need to make this short, the captain said. I have a ship full of wounded, and I have to report about this meeting to Captain Tuberville over on the Pinckney. He's the task force commander, so I can answer your questions, but please let's get to it. Margaret nodded. I need to know what happened, she said. The timeline. Timelines are very important. Yusaka's jaw muscles twitched. Six days ago, at 2114 hours, an ROV from the Los Angeles located an object of interest. The ship commander dispatched a diver to recover that object. The diver wore an ADS-2000, the atmospheric diving suit required for such depths. He disembarked from a dry deck shelter modified for decontamination. The diver recovered the object, then returned to the DDS. While still wearing the ADS, he was sprayed in bleach to kill any possible external contaminant before re-entering the ship proper. Margaret leaned forward. The ROV spotted something special? Sending out a diver was unusual? Not at all, Yasaka said. In fact, this was the 652nd time a diver from the Los Angeles had performed that task. Every two or three days, on average, the ROV saw something the onboard crew couldn't identify. Whenever that happened, Captain Banks sent out a diver. Clarence wondered if the repetitive, uneventful nature of their job had made the divers sloppy. Yasaka continued. 
At 21.55 hours that same day, the Los Angeles notified us that the object was a significant discovery. Margaret looked at Clarence, then at the captain. So if they thought it was significant, why wasn't it brought up to the Brashear? I was told this ship has a full BSL-4 research lab. Biosafety level 4. Clarence hated those words. The most stringent safety procedures known to man, used for work with lethal, highly contagious airborne diseases like Marburg and Ebola, shit that could kill millions. BSL-4 suits, the kind Margaret wore to study the alien infection, had positive pressure. If something poked a hole in the suit, air pushed out instead of in, because contact with even a single microscopic pathogen could mean death. My ship's facilities are fully compliant, Yasaka said. We've brought up 15 objects over the last five years, scraps of orbital hull mostly. Bringing potentially contaminated items up from 900 feet below is dangerous, Dr. Montoya, and expensive. So the Los Angeles was retrofitted with a small lab of its own. Standard procedure was to make sure an object was not of terrestrial origin before sending it up. Margaret looked angry, annoyed. So they found an alien object, and they just held on to it for a few days? Yasaka nodded. If they had found an alien body or something that was clearly made by little green men, that would have been different. What they found looked like a strange can, so they prepped it and waited until they had enough data to merit the extensive procedures required to send something to the surface. Margaret wasn't the only one getting annoyed. Clarence could see that Yasaka didn't appreciate Margaret's intensity. The captain had a ship full of wounded. Her crew had probably recovered hundreds of dead bodies from the Forest Sherman and the Stratton. This wasn't the time for Margaret to grill Yasaka about procedure. Clarence's job of helping Margaret included stepping in when she was about to burn a bridge. So it was business as usual. You would have probably ordered the object to be brought up, but you didn't get the chance. What happened next? Margaret leaned back in her chair, tried to relax. She'd picked up on Clarence's cue, knew she needed to back off a little. Yasaka folded her hands on her desk. Three days ago, the Los Angeles reported erratic behavior among the crew. A fight involving a few injuries. I'm afraid there wasn't much detail. Captain Banks made his scheduled daily report, but he seemed... strange. Agitated, but not angry. He didn't exhibit any of the behaviors associated with the Detroit disease, nor did any of his crew send a message that they suspected he might be infected. That surprised Clarence. I'm sorry, Captain. You're saying that the crew could contact the Brashear without the Captain's knowledge? She nodded. The Navy knows what could be down there, Agent Otto. Procedures were in place that would allow anyone to raise a red flag if something seemed amiss with anyone on the crew, including the Captain. But no one raised a flag. No, they didn't. We now believe that the captain was infected, and he either sabotaged the red flag system before anyone could use it, or put guards at the various red flag stations, preventing anyone from calling up. His report about the fight was the last communication we received from the Los Angeles. At 1,200 hours on the day of the battle, we attempted to perform our daily scheduled communication with the Los Angeles. We received no response. Sonar told us the Los Angeles was just sitting there at 800 feet, not moving at all. Yusaka paused. She licked her dry lips, then continued. 
We were trying to figure out what to do next when the Los Angeles fired on the Forest Sherman. No warning. At that range, the Sherman had no chance. The Pinckney was the first to respond. Tuberville ordered counterfire, but the Los Angeles managed two more torps before she sank. One hit the Stratton, sinking it, and the other damaged the Truxton. The captain sat back in her chair. She stared off at some invisible thing in her stateroom. Since then, it's been a non-stop process of recovery and aid. Her voice was low, haunted. I've got a hold full of dead sailors stacked up like goddamn firewood. We've been ordered to burn the bodies. Their families don't even get to say goodbye. She shook her head, blinked rapidly, sat up straight. One of my recovery teams, in full BSO-4 diving gear, before you ask, found the bodies of Lieutenant Walker and Petty Officer Petrovsky and brought them aboard. Those divers are in containment cells for observation and won't be released unless you give the green light. Walker and Petrovsky are the only two crew members recovered from the Los Angeles, which means over a hundred bodies are still on the bottom. I pray to God that we haven't missed any. Clarence wasn't a religious man, but he'd match that prayer. One severed hand floating to the surface, escaping detection, bobbing towards shore. If that happened, all the containment efforts could be for naught. We've sent UUVs down to get eyes on the Los Angeles. They only came close enough to get visual confirmation that she's destroyed. The Brashear has two ADS suits on board. Tomorrow we're sending a diver down to try to recover the object. Clarence's stomach churned. Margaret already had to autopsy the infected bodies. If Yasaka's divers succeeded, Margaret would also have to deal with the object that had started this whole slaughter fest. The captain stood. Clarence rose immediately. Margaret stood as well. I have to get back to my crew. Dr. Tim Feely is waiting for you in the research facility below decks. He's an MD. Degrees in genetics and bioinformatics, actually. But the man sure as hell knows his medicine. He saved a lot of lives in the battle's aftermath. He's a civilian researcher from Special Threats, Dr. Montoya, like you. Hopefully you'll get along because you're going to be here for a while. I've been told Walker and Petrovsky, and the object, if we find it, are too risky to ship to the mainland. Margaret nodded. That's right. Every bit of travel, every exchange, there's a small chance that something will go wrong. A plane crash, a car wreck, a helicopter's emergency landing. If even the tiniest speck of the pathogen gets out, it could spread too fast to contain. Yusaka sighed. <sighs> and then we start dropping nukes. Clarence saw Margaret look down. Her face flushed. He knew she'd taken that the wrong way that she thought Yasaka was blaming her for Detroit, blaming her just like the rest of the world blamed her. Right, Margaret said. If it gets out, we start dropping nukes again. She looked up, stared back at Captain Yasaka. It's been five years. If the disease had the ability to swim away from this location, it would have done so by now. This task force is a floating isolation lab. We have to make sure nothing leaves. Yasaka nodded, slowly and grimly. She knew the stakes. Clarence recognized the look in her eyes. Yasaka didn't think she would ever set foot on land again. Clarence hoped she was wrong. If she wasn't, he and Margaret would die right along with her.
You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.